Hello and welcome to our ongoing podcast series on moving the needle on wicked problems. Today we continue to talk about racism and diversity in Canada. And for this episode, we will be looking at the arts, movies, theater, television, music in Canada and around the world. We want to know if the arts has a diversity problem. Is there space for diverse voices on stage, in the writing and directing and editing rooms or as producers? Do arts organizations do enough to recruit and promote BIPOC actors and actresses, producers and directors? And what impact does diversity or the lack thereof have on the stories that are told by and about Canadians? Yeah, absolutely, Senator. Um... You know, I think we've heard many voices complain that, you know, BIPOC stories haven't been told or supported. You know, often we see, you know, actors, uh, BIPOC actors that, you know, they don't really have the leading roles. They're pushed to the second or third supporting character. You know, but it's kind of peculiar that this even happens uh, in the sense that we know there's actually a big market for BIPOC stories. You know, Canadians, people around the world want to see them. We see that with the success of movies like The Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians. So, you know, there is this, this growing sense that there is a need to have more diversity. So why don't we just get to the interview? So today we are speaking to Ravi Jain, who is the founding artistic director of Why Not Theatre in Toronto. Ravi is very well known in Toronto circles, and I would suggest in Canadian circles, he's been twice shortlisted for the 2016 and 2019 Simonovich Prize and won the 2012 Pauline McGibbon Award for Emerging Director and the 2016 Canada Council John Hirsch Prize for Direction. His play, Seasick, which he has co-directed, is currently being screened at COP26 in Glasgow right now. Isn't that marvelous? Uh, and his adaptation of the wonderful Indian epic Mahabharat will premiere at the Shaw Festival in 2023. And he's also you know, been working with David Suzuki in a piece called What You Won't Do for Love, which because of the of the COVID crisis has pivoted from being a piece of theater to a film which will premiere in Vancouver in 20 later on this year. On a personal note, in 2014, I think it was, or 2013, uh, Ravi and his mother Asha accompanied uh, me to Berlin, where he and his mother performed A Brimful of Asha, which is one of my all-time favorites of retelling the immigrant narrative set in the Canadian context. And the ambassador in Berlin, our ambassador in Berlin told me she had never seen the embassy rock more with laughter <laughs> than it did that day. So welcome. It's We're talking serious stuff, but hopefully we can also throw in some humor. So we today, <laughs> absolutely, that was a wonderful event. I, I one of one of my favorite one of my favorite shows of your shows, although clearly I'm going to go and see many more. So back to our serious topic. You've been an artist in the Toronto scene and the Canadian scene for a very long time. I know that. And what was your experience of racism and how did 
how did you how did it express itself? Yeah, well, so first, thanks to both of you for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I would say I, I grew up in Toronto and I left for university. And so I was working and living abroad for about eight years before coming back to Toronto to be a theater artist. So in 2007, I came back and I had worked with incredible international artists, like definitive uh, artists who were shaping contemporary theater. I had you know, worked with them and, and had a chance to, to either train or work with them. And so when I came to Toronto, a lot of people, one, didn't know who that those people were. And two, when they saw me, they just assumed that I should um, be in shows that were South Asian themed or that I should start a South Asian theater company. I was told that so many times and I thought, that's so strange because I, I'm like whiter than most Canadians. You know, I grew up in Canada. <laughs> you know, of course I have an Indian background. I have Indian culture, but I don't speak Hindi. I speak French better than I speak Hindi. So this, the way I was seen versus who I was, was a really strange kind of, um, there was a disconnect for me. And, and more importantly, I had trained in Europe and America. And so the language of theater that I spoke was very, let's say for lack of better word it was very white it was very euro it was very um it wasn't south asian to say the least um so what was strange for me was having the diverse background of training that i had but always being approached as oh well you you need to be in that south asian play you need to be a south asian artist and i i really didn't understand what that meant um and so i spent a lot of my career fighting that um that stereotype and and um and for me, you know, I met a, an amazing uh, Indian, British Indian director named Jatinder Verma, who really in 2010 shifted my perspective around this. You know, he was making theater in England at a really racist period of time. They would put on shows and then come outside afterwards and get into fights because the violence was so thick. Ah. And he said, you know, for him, um, they at the time they were using their roots to discover other roots of creation. So they were they were not culturally specific. They were the avant-garde. And that was the thing that I really latched onto was to say, you know, I'm an avant-garde artist. I'm not a South Asian artist. I'm like, you know, you all praise Robert Lepage. Well, I'm like him. Why isn't he a, a white artist or a Quebec artist? I mean, although he would probably say he's a Quebec artist, but I want to be like everyone else. And so my identity became my lens that became really unique and innovative and became my way of expressing my kind of avant-gardeness but yeah i had to really really shake off that um the way people mm. saw me and especially the way i dress like i would often wear a kurta a kurta mm. with jeans and so the, these assumptions about who i was were always put on me before i even opened up my mouth that is so true the assumptions people may make about you based on your uh, on the way you look on your race or your gender or the way you dress as opposed to who you really are i really uh, identify with that by the way i'm i too am sometimes i would say not sometimes often seen as a south asian senator when i just want to be the senator but now yeah. That you are successful, and let me suggest that you are super successful. Can you reflect outside? You know what you've shared. Uh, you know, can you reflect on 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 how you overcame came this sort of persistent view of yourself, which was filtered through a lens that was 
that didn't reach you, but some image of you that people had. And and how did you actually go about, uh, you know, making a film about David Suzuki that's going to be aired <laughs> this year? Yeah, I mean, it's I just worked constantly and I was collaborating with as many people as possible to redefine the expectation. And so, you know, for me as an artist, the work that I always made, it always was just a little different. It just wasn't what was being seen in Toronto, you know, in the years that I was kind of coming up. I was always bringing another, you know, flavor, let's say, or a masala, if we want to be culturally <laughs> specific. I was trying to to do something different. And so the work that I was making was starting just to, it was being known for being just different. It was either really physically inventive or the story we were telling, the way we were doing it was unique. And I, I ensured to make that my brand, so to speak. But then it was funny because in 2012, when I had this hit show, as you mentioned, A Brimful of Asha, which is a show with my real life mother, who we talk about how my parents tried to arrange my marriage. And so in the show, I'm talking about with my mother, the, the, the divide, being a Canadian and being an Indian, and that my mom and I are both straddling these two worlds and we're, it's very hard to navigate. But it was this Indian show and all of a sudden it reconfirmed people's view of me in a lot of ways, even though for me, you know, a lot of people would talk about the Indianness of the show. and Oh, how cool to have your mom and talking about arranged marriage, huh? And I, I was, I would always point to the New York Times. The New York Times quote was that it's pioneering in its, in, in its form. It's pioneering, uh, it's heartwarming and pioneering and inventive for the form because of the way my mom and I perform together. And so, um, you know, I always, I had to, even in that show with that huge success, I had to point to the avant-garde-ness of it and take the shine off the Indianness of it. Even though I was super proud of that, I, I, I knew I needed to, um, to challenge that with, with the work we made. So with my company, Why Not Theater, as it evolved, at every turn, I was always uh, defying expectations. So, you know, um, we, it's grown now to, you know, it's rare for independent companies to grow in Canada in general, as, and it's even rarer to do that without purchasing a venue. And we managed to grow from being just me to a team of 12 people, an operating budget of $2 million. And, um, and, and I think, by by doing that, by defying odds like that and being creative, I've managed to, um, I think I've managed to, uh, to have people see me the way I want them to see me rather than the way they want to see me. That's actually quite, quite remarkable, you know, uh, an independent theater company without a venue, as you say. Um, you know, and I, I wonder if, you, you know, when you embarked on this setting up an independent company of 12 people with a $2 million budget, what's the greatest risk you think you have taken? Um, was it I performing was, that uh, brimful of Asha, which is, a, which is the cornerstone of your success, but was that also a risk of being pigeonholed? I mean, I see, it's funny. Risk is, it's all in the eye of the beholder. I mean, for me, you know, it was a no brainer uh, to do the show with my mother, for example, like I knew she was charming. I knew I believed in it. And so for me, you always risk failure, but uh, the belief in what, what I was doing was always stronger. I think, though, in general, the risk 
the risk for me as a company has been we've just I've had to go a different way. I think that the system in general, like I always knew, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in other industries and they're they, they're very successful and they've been able to, you know, they whatever you get on a partner track or whatever you get, you get to graduate within your profession. In the arts, that kind of grad graduation doesn't really exist. It's it, it's very much a lottery, and in particular, to be the artistic director of a of a major company, an institution, those jobs are few and they're rare rare when they come up, and they're traditionally held by white men. Um, now we're maybe in a change, but but the 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 my journey of navigating those institutions, I always I always started with the traditional path and then I had to subvert and take the risk to do my own thing. And so really investing in my own work and my company's work was the biggest risk that could have been a tremendous failure. Um, but we you know you have to do something different if you want to you know survive I guess or, or and and for me it's the it's what I feel my company is what I feel the art should do, which is surprise people, redefine what the art can be in society. And at a lot of those institutions, I, I don't know if they're doing that or if they if I'd have the freedom to do that. Um, do that on myself. <laughs> well, I just wanted I just wanted to point out, Senator, this is our our first baby is on the podcast today. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow, cool. I just thought I would. Uh, yeah. Five months Lovely. old, hopefully sleeping well. Looks like He's sleeping well, actually. <laughs> But you just mentioned something, and 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 you know the senator had talked about it. Part of the the reason why we wanted to do this podcast and a, and a particularly a mini series on diversity and racism in various sectors is, you know, I, I guess I just want to ask: Is there a, a racism diversity problem in the arts sector in Canada? Uh, how do you think it manifests itself? Um, and you know, you could talk about you know people have written that, and you've sort of mentioned it as well that you know a lot of the the theater landscape is predominantly white, or at least the directors and maybe the producers are as well. Like, where are we at in Canada? You know, for that uh, for that situation for in the art sector. Yeah, so I'm really excited by this question because I've been doing a lot of thinking about it, and I think where to start where that's really important is is really the foundation of the arts in Canada and this thing called the Massey Commission. Mm. And what that was in the 1950s was Vincent Massey um, did a kind of study and, and it was the first sort of um, cultural policy for the arts the Canadian government invested in. And they did it because they were under threat of American culture and they were looking for what is a Canadian culture. And embedded in the fabric of that document is a ton of racist language, particularly towards indigenous arts and culture, where indigenous culture is seen as, you know, um, you know, it's 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 um, uh, it's community oriented. It won't survive, and like the indigenous people, it won't survive. So it's not worth investing in. And like this is in the root of of the document. And so, you're so so out of the Massey Commission is born, you know things like major institutions, the Kenda Council's born out of it. Um, I believe the National Arts Center comes out of that. You have the operas, the ballets, the big regional theaters, all of these institutions that are, are inheriting European legacies. Those are the foundation of the arts in the 50s. So mm. as we go on and Canadians start, the, the idea of Canadians starts to change, those institutions are constantly being challenged. And at each stage, there's less and less money to be given to those new sets of voices. So 
challenging the Euro institutions was the Canadian playwright and, you know, the East Coast in particular, like where's the, and the prairies, where are those voices? Then after that comes, you know, like women, <laughs> where are we? And then uh, queer people, trans, different, you know, different sexualities and gender orientations. And then comes uh, racialized people. And at each stage, there's less and less money. And so in the foundation, because we value these operas, these ballets, we don't have those, we don't have new institutions being born. It's all because the bulk of the resource is being held at the top. Mm. No new institutions mm. are being born. No, no different perspectives are being funneled um, or, or given platforms. So already in that, you valued certain voices over other voices. So that trickles down to who's on stage, who's telling the story, all of these things, it's 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 been a long time of um, a single perspective, and so, so yeah. So, no, I was so, going to say it's. So, I mean, that's basically systemic racism in and yeah. of itself. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, the arts no. is is like every sector. Like you know, um, arts is a reflection of society. So if society has a systemic racism problem, definitely the arts does too. It's all of the values. And um, the ways of being are, you know, that's what the arts is. It's culture. It's it's an expression of our culture. So it has to be the same. Now, people have been challenging, as you just mentioned, for decades, you know, this this sort of institutional uh, bias and, and the systemic nature of it. Um, but we're, we're kind of wondering, though, is has there been a ramp up in the last, say, year and a half, you know, you know, with George Floyd, people going uh, to the streets and really trying to make, you know, anti-racism and diversity an important issue. Uh, you know, we've talked to journalism uh, people already. They're saying that, you know, more and more people are saying that we need more diversity there. Are we finding that there is this uh, ramping up of trying to break down these institutional barriers? Um, I would, I would controversially say no. I think oh. the challenge is you know, I feel like we had a moment and everyone was learning a new language, but I would say that it's it's remained language. And what we're seeing is a resistance to change the system. If you don't change the system, you don't change anything. And so all of these inequities of class, of race, um, they don't change if, if the entire structures aren't changed. So for example, what I described in terms of the funding, it hasn't changed. So Therefore, we, we value certain voices over other, literally with money. We might be changing certain leadership, might be changing um, more voices on stages, more voices in films. Maybe people are diversifying. And now people are, I would say, are more afraid of making mistakes because they'll be called out. So if you hire a white person in a role for a black artist, you know, that just, you, that, you won't get away with that anymore. So there's more, there's more, accountability, let's say, but the systems haven't changed. And so what I'm seeing a lot of is, in particular, is a lot of people who continue to hold power, who have a, a new language. They they do land acknowledgements before meetings. They, they know the words accountability. They know to say, I use the pronouns he, him. Um, they've learned a language, but they haven't changed the power structures. And so in, in the arts in particular, I would say in Canada, I, I would argue that that's, that's definitely where we're at. It's, it's really interesting when, when you talk about performance art in this way as a, as a sorry substitute for 
real action and meaningful action. Um, you know, I, I'm maybe uh, one of the more naive people. I look when I look at the arts and culture, I see talent like you uh, and others shining through. And I think that the arts and culture sector is is possibly more welcoming of talent uh, because talent shines like you do. But I appreciate what you're saying. On the other hand, uh, there's you know there's this. Uh, 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 you know, there's this proliferation of what I would call the cancel culture as well. Uh, and again, the arts is front and center of canceling people. I'll just give you a few examples. Michelle Latimer, Latimer Joseph Boyden, maybe Albert Schultz. There are others. Do you think this is part of performance art then? this, Or, or does that really go to a deep-rooted sense of, of change and doing things differently? Hmm. Um, I think that... I think that we're at a time where we're still figuring out this new language and we're still trying to understand power. And I think in a lot of the debates, a lot of nuance is lost because we're still very early in this change and um, the speed of change isn't, the, the expectations and the speed of change aren't the same for everyone. And so I think that um, what that causes is a kind of um, tension. I, I don't know if I would say, I think any loss of power feels like oppression. And when I hear people talk about cancel culture, I tend to see examples where um, mm -hmm. that's actually what's happening is because you're not allowed to plant your flag here, you feel like it's oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, then there are more complex ones like Michelle Latimer, which I think is a very complex issue. And, you know, um, uh, depending on what perspective you have, you know, you, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and these things are gray and nuanced. And, um, yeah, I don't have an answer other than, uh, other than to point to the history where the history has been very exclusive and has been dominated by a single perspective. And no doubt, because we all made commitments to change, now it's kind of open season. And it's going to be, there's going to be a kind of violence that has to emerge because it's not going to be easy. Um, okay. And so, yeah, so I think I think we're presented with a lot of com confusing, conflicting examples, like you mentioned, that will maybe a couple of years from now, when we have more perspective, we might think, oh, I see that differently. Okay. We'll come back next time, maybe to this question. It's a, it's one that does interest me a great yeah. deal uh, because I see its expressions again and again. Oh, and even the baby. Up. Even the baby sees it. He wants expression. more nuance. He just oh, wants okay. more nuance. All right. Over to you, Paul. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to, you know, sort of follow up on some of the things that you were, you know, sort of talking about with, with diversity. And um, you know, there's been sort of studies that have done that 
you know, essentially, you know, the Canada's four largest public art museums, you know, the majority of the directors are, or not even the majority, the vast majority of directors are white, senior executives are white. You know, there there does seem to be this lack of uh, diversity in the governance of Canada's arts institutions, not only as we talked about on stage, but uh, but in the in the people that are deciding these things. You know, what what can we do there to to change that to to, uh, you know, is there something that the government can do maybe to to, you know, increase diversity to have it better reflect Canadian society? And, and then, you know, once we have that uh, diversity and more and more, we can actually then start telling more and more diverse stories. Uh, yeah, I think the biggest thing in what you said is we keep looking to the institution to solve our problems. Mm. And it's not in the institution. The majority of the arts is community-based, particularly when you're dealing with racialized artists who are working with communities. That isn't to say it's of a lesser quality. It still can be professional and you know world-class excellence, but it doesn't necessarily happen in the spaces of those buildings that you know a lot of people never walk into. Ne like think about that in a, in a city like Toronto. There are people who never, never walk into our theaters ever. They don't even know they exist because the institution hasn't done its job. And so how are we thinking about what purpose the art serves? What, what function does it serve in society? And is it the venue? So is it is the AGO where we should consume and experience visual art? Can it be a community center? Can the, you know, can the group of seven be hosted at a, at a, community center in Brampton. Um, how can we rethink, um, you know, our, our institutions? I would say that's the biggest thing is we've, we've relied on them for too long. And I don't think that's necessarily the way to go. And so, you know, from a government standpoint, I would say if we flip the pyramid and thought about actually funding community organizations to the same level that we fund, you know, the institutions, you'd have a totally different relevance and meaning for the arts. You'd have a different audience base and connection if it could be a viable profession at the bottom of the pyramid. Is, is but, that con conversation happening, Ravi? I don't think so because people don't want to change the system. Mm. And, you know, you wrote a fantastic article about, you know, um, systemic racism and philanthropy. And that's part of the thing is, you know, money wants to be named on an institution as well. And so can we subvert and rethink what role the institution can play to plant seeds in communities and plant seeds to really give artists the resource that they don't have access to? And I'm, I'm sort of thinking of it as well in the sense of, uh, you know, Diversity is not only just, you know, the right thing to do to re reflect the stories of Canadians, reflect the stories of the world, but, you know, actually there's an economic argument to be said too here, right? I mean, you know, your production was very successful. We have, you know, big movies, you know, Black Panther, Crazy Rich Asians, et cetera, et cetera, that are now starting to demonstrate, which I'm surprised it's taken us so, so long to get there, that there's big, big, big audience, audiences, lots of money to be made uh, for having, you know, specifically BIPOC stories and being told. So is that is that something that people need to start to take a, to understand and, and become aware of, that there is actual an economic benefit to the arts community to tell these stories? 
Yeah, I think that's important. Um, I also think that it's important to understand, like where I began, that we're also in hybrid culture. So I don't, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, created a production of Hamlet that was bilingual in American Sign Language and with and a female Hamlet and a diverse cast. I just directed a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet at Stratford with a 14-year-old Asian Juliet, a black young Romeo, and a blind artist playing the friar. And why I cite those is to say, you know, uh, we, our, our like brand is diversity is our strength, but we rarely, we rarely use that. Um, and so I think, I think, um, yes, there's an economic gain and, and there is a, 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 an audience, a wider audience to be found in the hybridity of, of what kind of stories we're telling, what kind of artists we have reflecting their, uh, you know, uh, representing those stories. But I also think there's a there's a fundamental thing about the arts and its role in society. And that for me is about belonging and about a narrative, mm. a cultural mm -hmm. narrative. And that to me is is more important than the economic driver. It's about who we are as a people and, and democracy, who we let have a voice and a place at this table. And, you know, the, the next level of nuance to this is there are artists of color who tell stories that aren't about their identity and mm. they don't want to tell stories about their identity and they should have the freedom to do so. There's just a lot of barriers to allow that to happen. And and those those stories can be really successful. Kim's Convenience is a great example, even yeah. though it mm -hmm. is about identity. You know, it was a play that got turned into this hit TV show and, and went the distance. Um, but there are a lot of examples that that didn't that didn't get the opportunity to hit that um, that graduate that uh, what's it called like that accelerator let's say or that that path to success the resource path to success and we have many more stories available to us in this country that um, we we lose out on because the artists don't stay in the profession they go to the states they go to the mm -hmm. UK mm -hmm. and that that brain drain is is really severe because it's a small pond here. Oh, I hadn't quite thought of the brain drain of artists. You're absolutely right. Our most successful artists tend to go somewhere else where they are more highly valued. But I've also heard you say, in a, in a sense, I think you're saying we need to defund the cultural institutions, uh, which is which is radical. I mean, as radical as defund the police, maybe, but still it's fairly radical. Uh, and that's the only way you can invert the pyramid in a way um, so that we get more. The stories of the people on the stages, the music of the people in the orchestras, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I think that's uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that the discussion is not happening because, you know, you follow the money, you kind of see where the power is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's happening. I just don't think the action is happening. And and for me, too, it's sure defund the institution, but I think it's also rethink the institution, rethink mm -hmm. its role. I don't think anyone's really thinking about their role as a, as a cultural institution to really think about how how can it I mean look people are thinking about broadening their audiences but I think when it falls into the economic side it mm -hmm. it 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 um it doesn't make it an authentic um change or a lasting one because economics when economics change so do priorities and values and so how to maintain um, 
a more uh, committed sort of broader, have a committed, yeah. committed, broader, committed, uh, broader perspective that stays committed. So I guess I guess what I'm hearing you say is, you know, beyond the the business imperative of broadening your audience, there is a social, let's say, a social cohesion imperative, a moral imperative, a truth telling imperative to be brought to the table. And and since we've uh, just come out of the COVID crisis, I'm curious to know how artists like you have survived. I mean, it's been difficult for you all along. The COVID crisis must have made it doubly, triply more difficult for you. Where did you find the strength to keep doing your work? Well, I think I think here, you know, it's super important to just recognize the support the government gave and came in with. You know, not all artists experience the the pandemic in the same way. Um, you know, a lot of freelance artists in particular were really helped out by Sir. Oh, hold on. There. Mm -hmm. She likes um, that Serb, I can hear. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Serb really helped. Uh, so many artists that I spoke to felt more financially secure during the pandemic than they ever had in their lives. Wow. Um, and that makes a difference. Um, for us, being a company and being an organization, you know, the wage uh, subsidy uh, really helped us, uh, you know, keep jobs and, and stay, stay open. Um, you know, the hardest part was uh, not being able to gather with people and that there was this real push to online, which is not our business. And that was a really hard thing to kind of go through because a lot of money was being driven and a lot of um, desire was being sent to, you know, continue the performing arts online, which isn't really the right medium for what we do. Um, and so there was a lot of hard learnings that had to happen. Um, and, you know, we got to practice new skills and do things, but at the end of the day, gathering in person with a little baby um, is, is, really, um, is really what we do. So, so um, how did we go on? I mean, luckily I, ha I have a group of people that I work with, so we kept each other positive when we cried. Hey, well, let, let's keep the baby's needs under consideration, Paul. Why don't you ask the last question and then we can wrap up to let Certainly. the baby. Yeah. Well, I was just, I, what, before we get to the question, I was just thinking, sir, maybe basic income for um, artists or artists, something, you know, yeah. maybe going forward is not a bad idea. Uh, but just the last thing, just and, and you're doing great work of, of balancing <laughs> both things here. Um, you know, one of the things that we have coming soon, hi, hi, we have coming soon into back into the Senate, I guess, uh, is is Bill C-10, which is trying to modernize the, um, you know, the way that artists are are basically um, looked after when it comes to streaming giants to be able to make some more money there if they if they have that. Uh, streaming giants like Netflix, Spotify would actually, you know, being uh, giving money into the system. You know, there's some concern about this bill about that it may trample on some, you know, free expression rights of Canadians. Is there anything that you have thought about with this bill? Is it a positive step forward that we can sort of take with us as we examine it over the next coming months? I think that I don't know. I don't know enough of the nuance of the bill, but I would say when, you know, having, you know, Netflix and, and major streaming platforms, if they're 
if there is money being taken out of the community, how to put it back in the community. That makes a lot of sense to me. The question becomes, where does that money go, as always? Mm -hmm. yeah. And oftentimes the approach is to give it to institutions and or organizations that exist, and then it rarely gets to the artists. Particularly, and I've experienced this with film, film is a whole other um, place playground to play in that a lot of particularly racialized artists don't have access to. Mm. The, the equipment, the knowledge, the training. Um, I mean, of course, there's tons of racialized artists who are in the film industry, don't get me wrong, but in terms of the performing arts transitioning into film, you know, uh, a lot of thought needs to go in if we're really serious about doing that, how to create the supports and the access to the resource required to be able to even engage in film. So even writing for film and TV is a whole other can of worms than writing for, for, the, for the theater. So if that resource can get sent down and really further down um, without the um, um, gatekeeper of the institution, that would, I think that's always the step that's, that's missed. Okay, well, I, I, I really want to thank you, Ravi, for sharing your thoughts with us and for bringing a baby on the show. Yeah. I think that's a first time. We will be sure to let everyone know that there's a baby on board now. I want to also thank our listeners and remind them if you have questions or ideas or even potential speakers, just email me and I will be able to get back to you in good time as I hope to, so that we continue to uh, to curate the series in a, in a manner that speaks to your interests. So we're always happy to hear from you. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.